0: Hello, my friend, and welcome to another episode of Negotiate Anything. Thanks for spending time with us today. It's listeners like you in 181 different countries that have made Negotiate Anything the most popular negotiation and conflict resolution podcast in the world. I'm your host, Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer, mediator, professor, and the director of the American Negotiation Institute. Before we get started, I have two quick questions for you. Is negotiation a critical part of what you do? Do you need to resolve conflict and persuade at work? If you answer if you answered yes to both of those questions, visit our website to learn more about our negotiation workshops. We've traveled the country working with professionals just like you, and we'd love to have the opportunity to work with you too. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Hey everyone, as promised, here is part one of the virtual town hall that we did on the topic of how to have difficult conversations about race. A lot of people have been asking for this for weeks and they have been waiting patiently uh, for it. So sorry for the delay but we're excited to get this to you. Now here in part one, this is the prepared portion. This is where I was sharing my thoughts and giving some actionable tips. And then in the next three videos what you're going to get is the Q&A portion. And these questions were fantastic. And this is what made the, the presentation take so long because that's what pushed this over three hours. So right now we're going to do the prepared portion and then keep an eye out for the next episode coming out tomorrow with the Q&A. So with that, let's move to Q&A. So I'm going to open up the, uh, the Google document and we're going to hit up these uh, questions. Um, yeah. And so just keep the questions coming whether you're listening on LinkedIn or you're on the, on, uh, on the Zoom call, just keep the questions coming. We're going to try and answer as many as we can. And um, yeah, we'll, I'll try and stay as long as you need me. Okay, so first question, what types of things do we need to be conscious of to avoid in our conversations that can shut down the other person or um, create more barriers instead of breaking them down? So to answer this question, I'm gonna circle back to what I said about shame. Sometimes the way that we approach these conversations trigger shame and it causes people to to recoil. And we're losing potential allies by being too aggressive, okay? Remember, there's a difference between being aggressive and assertive. When you're being aggressive, you're trying to work against someone. But when you're being assertive, you're working in favor of something, right? So here we have this cause that we're trying to advocate for. So in this case, in order for us to be assertive, we just continue to apply that persistent positive pressure, like, like I discussed earlier. But we do it in a way that, that avoids unnecessary offense. And the key word that we want to avoid here is shame. If we start to trigger shame, people aren't going to engage. Okay, next question. How should we start the conversations um, with those outside of our friends and family? And should we? engage in those conversations outside of our friends and family. And so with friends and family, I'm going to include colleagues at work um, within our friend friend group. And some of you might be saying, Kwame, they're not my friends. It's like, okay, okay. I know sometimes the people (laughs) that we work with aren't our friends, but they're close to us. But here's what I want you to do. Again, focus on your impact. Focus on your impact. If we're trying to persuade strangers in this, we're going to have a lot of difficulty because these questions are deeply emotional deeply emotional. And so it it's going to be more effective for us to have conversations with people with whom we already have a little bit of underlying rapport. And so before we start evangelizing to to people who are not connected to, let's try to minimize, let's try to focus on the people where we do have a stronger connection because it increases our likelihood of success because we already have that fra- that foundation which is going to be powerful when it comes to these conversations. And then if you feel as though you've done enough then you can start to focus outside but again i think it's more important to focus on uh, the the manageable things that we can do okay next question i'm honestly afraid of saying anything as a white privileged male i feel like if i do say something others will perceive it in a way that's in that's a direct opposition because they already have it in their mindset that i have no say on the topic for example you haven't experienced or lived lived it so you have no say which then leads me to back leads me back to my first sentence on why I chose to say nothing. So my question would be, what are things I can do to help explain my opinions or questions to people who don't want to hear it? So first thing I would do is challenge the assumption. Do people not want to hear it? That's the first thing. Um, Second thing is I would try to focus on um, almost triaging pain here and triaging discomfort. Okay, so I'll be vulnerable here. I'll share my mistakes that I've I've made. Um, So I remember when um, Whitney was going through uh, the pregnancy with Kai. And sometimes I was a little bit frustrated because, of course, when when Whitney's a doctor, so she, she was in residency while she was pregnant. That's really hard to do pregnancy is hard enough, but she was already going through residency. And so when she came home, she was really tired. And so I remember she would ask, hey, are you okay? You seem upset. And I said, well, you know, I'm just disappointed that we're not able to spend more time together because you're, you're very sleepy. Um, and I mentioned that more than one time. Uh, that's not very compassionate, right? Who's in more pain? Who's, who's, who's struggling the most here? It's definitely her definitely her. And so what you need to do is put the needs of the person who's experiencing the most discomfort in front of your own. Okay. And so in the conversation, what I would do is before I, if I were in your position, what I would do is instead of focusing on sending the message and sharing your opinions, I would focus on trying to learn from the person. So focus on that humility and say, there's, there's stuff that I need to learn about this and then ask the question and learn more. But here's the thing. It's not the responsibility of people of color to educate others. And I think for, for some people, that's a burden they're, they're not willing to carry. We can't force anybody to, to do that for us. That's unfair. And so what I would do is I would, again, go back to the compassionate curiosity framework and I'd acknowledge, hey, listen, I just want to be supportive. I understand that you, you're going through something right now. So just let me know what I could do to be supportive. And then you could ask using the compassion, getting curious with compassion. Um, And first, give them the right to say no. Of course, they always have the right to say no, but almost encourage them to say no if they don't feel comfortable doing this. Just say, listen Kwame, um, first of all, before I even ask this, feel free to say no, okay? I don't wanna put you in a difficult position, but there are questions that I have about the situation and I genuinely want to, to learn more. Would you be open to a discussion? If they say no, then the answer is no. And then you know that. You can't force anybody to have a discussion. But if the answer is yes, Now we can have a discussion. So what I would do is invite them to have the discussion, but be very clear that you're not trying to force it. And then after you've learned from them, then reciprocity will lean in and they'll say, well, what do you think about it? And so then you can share your opinion and then ask what do you think, right? And so that's how the conversation develops. But I think the, the, at least we have to start off by acknowledging how the person on the other side feels, and then we can get deeper from there, but we can't force people to have the conversation. But again, you have to start. Okay. Um, question number four. I'm a white woman, and my question is how to motivate white people to take action and recognize their biases, the inequalities, and inequities, and take action in the organizations and systems they're a part of. Listening is a great place to start, but my fear is that it will end with a bunch of pretty social media posts and or one-and-done conversations that actually go nowhere meaningful. So I guess. How can we use these conversations as a starting point to continue dialogue and real commitment to action? And so the the magic in this question is the last part, commitment to action. So as we're having these difficult conversations, we want to transition into getting commitment, right? It's important to have the conversations. It's important to listen. That's critically important. But we also have to talk about next steps. Excuse me. And so if you think about the compassionate curiosity framework get, again right when we're in the listening stage we're in step one and step two. So we're having um, getting curious with compassion, and we are engaging in um, acknowledging emotions right now we need to transition into the last step when we're talking about the, the solutions right commitment is key if we don't have commitment, then it goes away. Think about this. If we persuade people based on passion alone, that's problematic and here's why. So if you think about um, the motivational speeches and motivational speakers, a lot of times you get somebody uh, who's in the crowd, you whip them into an emotional frenzy and then they say, yeah, I'm gonna do it. Yeah, I'm gonna do it. Yeah, I'm gonna do it. And they feel that way for a few days. And then the next next week, they're like, yeah, I'm gonna stay on the couch. (laughs) I don't feel like doing it anymore. We can't persuade based on feelings because feelings fade. We have to persuade based on true commitment. And so one of the questions that we have to ask as we're transitioning into joint problem solving is pose the question. In a couple of weeks, in a couple of months, the emotional fervor that we're feeling right now is going to fade away. What do we do to make sure that our commitment doesn't fade with it? And so what you're doing is you're pre-negotiating that point of failure in the future. It's like an if then proposition. So now two months down the line, if we get to a point where commitment starts to fade, then we do this to resurrect the commitment. And so those are things we need to keep in mind when we're trying to transition from these, uh, these important conversations that we're having to actually true commitment that lasts. Hey you, I'm Andrew Seaman. Do you want a new job or do you want to move forward in your career? Well, you should listen to my weekly show called Get Hired with Andrew Seaman. We talk about it all, and it's waiting for you, yes, you, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Businessweek, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets.
0: The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all.
1: Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career.
0: I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion.
1: Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Number five, how do we talk to younger kids about racism when it doesn't even make sense to them? That's a tough question. That's a tough question. And it depends on the age of your child. So let's, let's imagine we're talking about a teenager. I think it's important for a teenager to get a better understanding of the world and help them to recognize just what it is that they can do and get a better understanding of society, both for its good and for its bad. And so I think when we we do that, we have to just open them up to the conversation and be very um, patient with them. And I think what we could do is, is use what's happening in the news as an opportunity to, to see, first of all, where they are. We cannot just assume that we know where our children stand on these issues simply because they're our children. We have to recognize that psychologically, as children get older, it is a psychological necessity for them to start to pull away from their parents. And as they start to get older, they're going to get more input from school and their peers than they are from you. And so you're going to assume that you know where your ch- like what your children are doing and thinking, but you don't. Let's take, a second, let's take a second and go back to our childhood. Did our parents always know <laughs> what we thought about issues? Right? Sometimes we intentionally hid it from our parents. And so I would invite them to the conversation and just say, hey, what do you think about this issue? What problems do you see? What do you think we should do differently? Again, what are we doing? It's the compassionate curiosity framework. Oh, it seems like this really bothers you. Hey, tell me how you feel about this. Tell me what you think about it. And so where we think they might be going the wrong direction, we can ask a set of questions and bring them back. And if we think they're on on the right track, then we can encourage it and give them the positive reinforcement they need to continue to be committed to making the change that we want to see. And so, again, it's an example of how this framework is just so flexible. We can use it in any situation. And I think if you have the guide, again, it'll help you with these difficult conversations because sometimes we just don't know what to do or say. You want to try to pre-think it so you're prepared. Um, What if we've had a negative interaction already with someone, a family member, and now with this learning and our gifts, (laughs) we want to try to start again in a more productive way? How do we go about doing it? So for me as a negotiator and as a mediator, I like to state the obvious. I like to state the obvious, whether it's in my favor or not. If I know that both of us know it, then let's go ahead and get it on the table or else we're gonna just be pretending that everything is okay when it's not. And so let's say it's a situation where they shut you down and it didn't go well and all all these type of things. So you could say, listen, hey, last time we had a conversation, it did not go well. I think both of us can agree that it didn't go well. And it seems like I said some things that, uh, that um, rubbed you the wrong way. Uh, would you be interested at some point, you don't need to force them to do it now, but I think if you push it into the future like a day or something like that, give them some time to think about it, they're more likely to agree. Do you th- would you be open to having another conversation? Because this time I want to learn from you. So again, acknowledging the awkwardness, awkwardness is like an emotion too, right? So acknowledge that, get curious with compassion. Would you be open? to it okay if not now when do you think it will be open because i think we're going to have a little bit of underlying friction in our relationship if we don't have this conversation so i just want you to know my goal is to listen and hear from you and see how you think about it and and that's it and so you want to take baby steps baby steps right so we don't need to in this one conversation try to change their entire mindset at this point again thinking about it with the name the the title of my podcast negotiate anything what's the negotiation for we're negotiating we're negotiating to get them to be willing to engage in this dialogue we're not trying to win the negotiation because that that hasn't even happened yet like the dialogue that we're trying to have hasn't even occurred yet so we can't win it what we're trying to do in this small conversation is just get them open to the idea of having the conversation. And then we can try to be more persuasive in the actual conversation. Do you have recommendations for current thought leaders and advocates for social justice who we can follow and be learning from? Open to questions uh, for Kwame and to the group. For this one, I'll default to the group. So, what current thought leaders do you have when it comes to social justice that are moving things forward? I'll say um, my old employer, the Kerwin Institute at Ohio State, they have a lot of great resources, a lot of great guides, handbooks, reports, research. Check them out. Go to their website. Um, I think it's dot OSU.EDU, Catherine. If you could check me on that and put the link in into the comments, that'd be helpful. But yeah, hey, let's blow up the chat and, and create some um, resources on social justice, um, and maybe we could add that to the guide too. Say that again. The link. I think it's www.kirwan.osu.edu. K I R W A N. Dot Test the link before you put it in the chat. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Okay, another question about um, resources um, in juvenile justice and educational materials. Hey, um, Bill Case, I'm calling you out. Uh, If you're still listening to this, can you put that in the chat too so we can share it. Um, So questions, uh, some some research on um, juvenile justice. All right, question. My family watches Fox News 24 seven and they actually, they actually sound like Trump when they speak. I never respond because number one, I disagree with their version of the facts. Number two, I don't perceive they're open to listen or change. Number three, I feel like my silence is already communicating that I don't agree with them. My question is, what can I say? Okay, so before we actually start talking about how we play the game, we need to understand what game we're playing here. What is a win? What is the goal? right? And so let's say hypothetically in this situation, your goal is to change their perspective on these issues. Let's say that's the goal. I don't know. I can't see the chat, but for the sake of example, let's say the goal is that. What I would do first is make sure we have a clear understanding because we'll make assumptions about where we believe they stand based on what it is that they are watching. And then in we don't really understand specifically what it is that they feel. We have an assumption and it might be true, but what I would do first is encourage them to have a conversation with you. And um, again, I like to break these conversations into multiple steps because I think about it in terms of a con- uh, uh, an idea called persuasive weight. So think about it. So if I say, hey, do you want to grab pizza tomorrow? probably not going to be very hard to to get you to agree to that. That's not much. You're not committing to much. It doesn't require you to have any deep introspection about who you are and your identity. (laughs) So asking somebody to grab pizza, a friend, is not going to be very hard to do. So low levels of persuasive weight. Now let's look at the other side. If you're asking somebody to change the way that they see the world and and question their identity and the, the world they have around them, That's a heavy, heavy persuasive task right there. And so it might take multiple conversations. In the first one, what I would do is just signal your your willingness to listen. Signal your willingness to listen. And in that conversation, as you get curious with compassion, you're gathering data to understand what is persuasive to them, right? Just figure out what it is that they say that's persuasive. And then in the next conversation, you ask, you, you have another conversation, and then you can start to build talking points around that. So if you download the guide, how to talk about uh, race um, at AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash justice, it'll help you to start to be, create a game plan. But I think the most important thing for you to recognize right now is that conversation is going to be tough. It's gonna be very tough. And you try to, if you try to accomplish it all in one conversation, it's, I mean, it's impossible. There's nobody that could do that. It'd be really, really difficult, but it starts with a conversation. And I think if you signify, if you signal to them that you are willing to listen, it makes it more likely for them to listen to you, right? So just be very mindful of that and and break it up into different conversations and take your time in the persuasive process. But again, you don't stop holding people accountable. Right. You don't stop holding people accountable, but you have to keep on applying that positive, persistent pressure uh, to make sure that you're slowly starting to move them in the right direction. Okay, What are the specific words that can be offensive and what words can be uplifting? How do we change our way of speaking to include and respect um, everyone, including oneself? That's tough. So different people have different trigger words. I think that's really important to say. Different people have different trigger words. Um, And so one thing that I saw as a question that came up on LinkedIn is, um, how should I refer to people of color? Um, For instance, black, uh, African-American, those type of things. I mean, it depends on the person. Um, People are, you, you could say, I'm not offended by black. I don't think many people, black people are. Um, African-American is often a safer term, but recognize African-American is a cultural distinction. Uh, I don't identify as an African-American. I'm a Caribbean-American. I grew up um, in a Caribbean household. I grew up in, uh, my parents are immigrants and I grew up in small town Ohio. So my first um, interactions with African-Americans consistently, that occurred in, in undergrad when I was already an, an adult. And so it's, so I can, under, I can relate, but we're not culturally exactly the same, even though my accent has faded <laughs> that I had in my youth just because of constant code switching. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think that not exactly knowing which words are offensive are, is something that's a legit excuse for holding back from having these conversations. You still have to engage. And maybe that's something that a conversation that you have with, with people. But usually, I mean, if you just focus on using the, the cultural or the racial distinction that is most prevalent um, and uh, least controversial, you'll be fine. Um, my, my closing thought on that is just don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. Because a lot of times what, what we do is we overintellectualize these this, this process and the, the, the situation so we can protect ourselves from actually engaging well, I'm not going to talk about this until I am abundantly clear on how to say these exact words. No, what you're doing is you're protecting yourself. That's your fear, protecting you from having the difficult conversation. So don't let that be the thing that holds you back. On impact, what are your thoughts on performative allyship? We're having some complex words here. (laughs) How, How do you address this in yourself and others? So let me make an assumption here. When we talk about performative allyship, what it seems as though you're saying here is that the person who is trying to, uh, the person is essentially just trying to get woke points. They're trying to score points. They're virtue signaling to the, to the world. Hey, I'm a good person. This is why I'm doing it. I'm just covering my butt, right? Um, I think when it comes to yourself, the cool thing about the compassionate curiosity framework is that it can fl- be flipped internally too. So it's a very versatile thing. So it's a tool that you can use for introspection and um, emotional intelligence. So what we're doing in this situation is we're asking ourselves that question. How do I feel about this situation? Let's acknowledge that. What do, where do I currently stand? Um, then we ask questions, hey, why do I feel this way? What led me to do this? What am I trying to do? You might find through that process that the reason you did that was because you wanted to let other people know that you're on the team without actually having to commit to doing something. So I think the self-awareness aspect of this is gonna be important for you. And then when it comes to performative allyship in others, what I would suggest that you do is you open, you start the conversation using the compassionate curiosity framework. Hey, Steve, thank you so much for that post, I appreciate it. And you're saying this personally, just, you know, maybe in, in uh, like a private message or you call them or you have a conversation and then you say, acknowledge the emotion. Hey, I appreciate it. It sounds like you're really passionate about that and means a lot to me. So given your position, what do you think you could do to actually um, affect change in your, in your bubble? Right. Then you start to have a conversation about that. And then you transition to joint problem solving. Okay. That could work. Okay. What else could you do? Great. Okay, great. So uh, Does it sound like this is something that you can actually commit to doing? Will you do this? Okay, how can I help to hold you accountable in this situation? Because you are an ally and I appreciate that. And so how can I be an ally in your allyship (laughs) and and make sure that you follow through? And so that's how you get people from that performative side to actually doing, doing true commitment. Remember, commitment is key. We want people to actually commit to doing something. All right, so great question there. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know that in addition to our usual negotiation and conflict resolution focused trainings that we do for corporations, we also have added content focused on how to have difficult conversations about race. And so what we're doing is we're blending my background in civil rights along with my background in negotiation and conflict resolution to create a one of a kind training that is customized for your organization that helps you get through these difficult conversations. If you're interested, make sure to check Check out the link in the description to learn more. And now, back to the episode. How do you promote accountability without promoting shame? What are some tactics? And I think tone is going to be a big one. Tone is going to be big. So if you're actually having a conversation with somebody on this issue, I would strongly suggest picking up the phone and talking to them or talking in person. Talking in person is... Hard to do today. Right. So call call people, because the thing is, when you are sending messages that are text based, it's easy to read tone into that and read tone improperly. And so the person might interpret what you're saying as a threat, even though your tone was something that was compassionate. Right. So the more difficult the conversation, the more personal the conversation needs to be. So to eliminate the likelihood, or at least decrease the likelihood of misunderstanding. And so that's what I would suggest doing, calling somebody in. Another thing is, I see this on social media a lot, people try to persuade in the comments. Uh, Really tough to do that, because what happens is the person becomes more entrenched in their position. I don't want to concede publicly. I mean, think about it. When you go go into the chat section of an article, a YouTube video, or somebody's post that might have been controversial... How many times have you seen somebody say, hey, man, you know what? You're right. I publicly announced that I have changed my position on this platform for everybody to see. Never, <laughs> never. It would in- take an incredible amount of, of uh, humility. And I would, I would hazard to guess that most likely, even if the person sees through the course of the interaction, "Ooh, man, I might be wrong. I might be wrong on this. Um, they're not going to give you that win because now it's not about being right or wrong in the sense of what is actually true in the world. It's about me beating you and beating you publicly. And so I think that's something that you need to avoid, that you can do to avoid triggering shame in other people. Instead of calling people out, call them in through, power, through uh, interactions that are more personal. Okay. Okay. It's easy to talk to people who agree, but how do we approach the topic to somebody w- who we know doesn't um, without becoming a mess? It's something that I've struggled with um, in, talk- in trying to talk to people about the protests who don't agree. Again, go back to the framework. I, 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 it's really important for you to keep this simple. The, the more heated the conversation, the more tightly you need to cling to the compassionate curiosity framework. So let's give an example. So, um, It sounds like you don't agree with these protests. Yeah, I don't agree with these protests. They're blah, blah, blah. They might say something like that. Look at this. They're destroying the economy. They're, uh, they're, they're vandalizing buildings. Oh, okay. So th- it's the fact that you don't like some of the negative impacts of the protest. It sounds like that's really what you're not against, that you're against. Right. I'm against that part. Okay. So what other tools do they have to be heard? What would you suggest? Oh, okay. Blah, blah, blah. Well, that doesn't work all the time. Um, well, think about the, the value of the protest. Um, and also, you can also help to Help them to understand the distinction between a protester and uh, like a looter or a vandal. I was interviewed yesterday on the, on USA today, and they were talking about the persuasive, Like whether or not looting was persuasive. And I said, I don't for a lot of times, like in a lot of these situations, you have to clear in the majority of these situations, almost all of the situations, you have to create a clear distinction between the people who are bad actors and the people who are protesting peacefully. It's about the way you, you get heard. And so maybe they don't agree with the tactic, but then you can circumvent that and say, well, what's the message you think they're trying to send? What do you think about that? And so instead of talking about the spe- specific, let's broaden the scope of the conversation. What do you think about the situation? Okay, what changes do you think we can be made, could be made in society? All right, fine. You might not agree with the protest, but what can you do? Because you have just through this process identified some issues in society. So what would you suggest? You don't need to protest if you don't want to protest. Well, how about you talk about what you can do, right? So remember, sometimes we get too focused on like these very, very specific things. One of the things that we can do is broaden the scope. And if you broaden the scope wide enough, you can find an area of agreement. So, I mean, for me as a lawyer, even when I'm negotiating with opposing counsel, um, we clearly don't agree <laughs> on, on a lot of these things. Our clients might hate each other. We don't agree on the facts or anything like that. But what we can agree on is, hey, we're both attorneys and our, our um our allegiance is to the, of course, our clients, but also to the, the, the system of justice, to the legal profession. And our goal is to try to be efficient. And right now, the way that our clients are fighting, it's not very efficient. So what can you and me, what can we do together as attorneys to try and reach uh, uh, an acceptable agreement without having to clog up the court system, right? Let's try to find a way to settle this. And so that's a way that you can find a point of agreement and build from there. Because if you focus on on a narrow specific issue, you might struggle. But if you expand your scope of focus and talk about more broader issues, then you can find a point of agreement and then lead them to some kind of change on that. Okay, on the effort slash impact grid, is it better to focus on people who are open to conversation? Yes. Um, simply put yes. And so I think the thing we have to think about is think about politics. Think about politics. We have about 40 percent of the population that's Democrat that'll never change. We have 40 percent of the population that's Republican that'll never change, more or less. I don't know the stats specifically, Um, but there is a center group of 20 percent that can be changed that's open to dialogue. I would say focus your efforts there right? But don't get caught up in in, uh, throwing red meat to people who already agree with you. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel validated. That's where we feel comfortable. Um, And I think that's what one of the biggest issues with social media, it allows us to self segregate. So we're just caught in the echo chamber of people who already agree with us. And so what we want to do is find those people who are on the fence and see if we can recruit them to be allies in this. And then of course, get them to commit to actually doing something. But again, you have to, it's, all, it's like economies of scale. Um, at some point, you're going to reach a point of diminishing returns and you have to, to say, okay, I've tried my best here. What else can I do to be effective? What other conversations might be more effective for me and uh, bear more fruit than this one? What are some ways to address the I don't see color dismissal of racial inequ- inequality? Okay, so here's the thing, cause that's frustrating for me too, um, because for people of color, Color is a significant part of our identity. Every day we're reminded in subtle ways about the fact that we are the other in society, subtle ways. So for instance, um, Catherine, my chief operating officer, um, she's a white woman. And so she was getting the the pictures for the PowerPoint presentation. And it was just today that she realized it is so hard to get diverse, diverse pictures for this presentation, it's incredibly hard. Everybody's white, right? Think about this, okay, so if you get a Band-Aid, what color is the Band-Aid? The Band-Aid's flesh colored, who's flesh? It's so hard, little things like that, right? And so um, we are constantly aware of the fact that we are the other in society. Now for the people who say, I don't see color, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt because where does that come from? Where is that? I am going to go ahead and assume for my sake, so I can actually engage in this in a, in a more productive way. I'm going to assume that the reason that they said that is because they're saying, listen, other people might have a problem with your, your race or ethnicity, but I don't. Right. And so instead of saying, I, uh, you know, I see you as an individual and this is part of your identity, they say, listen, nope, it's not, a, it's not a problem for me. So the intentions are good. Um, but then I think it's an opportunity for education. Compassionate curiosity framework. Hey, I appreciate uh, that you seem to be and uh, somebody who's focused on equity. You want, it seems like you want to treat people equally. That's right, yeah, I think it's so ridiculous that color is such an important thing uh, in this society and it's being used to pull people apart. I think that's ridiculous. That's why I say I don't see color. It's not a problem for me. So I want you to know that I accept you. Okay, that's great. Well, thank you, I appreciate that. And so for me, as somebody who's a person of color, um, how else could I see that because for me seeing color isn't a problem i i like the fact that i am a black person because there's a rich history around that you as a white person you are you're proud of your heritage too right of course i know there are people going to who are going to say well you know there are things okay i get that but right we, we want people to be proud of their family and their heritage right it's part of who you are it's part of your unique story instead of saying hey, I don't see it, let's say I see it and I appreciate it, but I recognize that it shouldn't be something that I pull, that pulls people apart. And so I think that's a way that you can kind of break down the colorblind ideology. But I think when it comes to actually having the conversation, it'll help you to be more effective if you give them the benefit of the doubt. Because usually those people who say, I don't see race, usually, usually it comes from a good place. And it's easier to persuade if you just educate through asking questions and pull them your direction. And again, asking questions is tough to do off the fly. So I suggest getting that guide, how to have difficult conversations about race so you can actually think through it. Because again, you're going to be much better if you're prepared. Um, Okay. Is there a way I can let my friends know that my goal is to be an ally without offending them or coming off as a white savior? And excuse me. And how can I make sure that they know I'm being open to being challenged if my impact was negative or painful, even if my intent was not? Oh, fantastic question. Again, first of all, it shows that you're, you're aware of these issues and just the fact that you're aware is gonna make it less likely for you to be one of those people who get caught in this. And so what I would do is again, be honest. Listen, just say, I'm a person who wants to help and wants to be an ally. I don't always know how to do that and then invite them to correct you. Just say, if ever I do or say something that's offensive, let me know so I can, I can be better in this, right? That's, that's it, just be honest. Like what you said right there, say that <laughs> again. Don't overthink it, don't overthink it. Don't use that as an, as an excuse not to engage because you can engage. But I think showing that vulnerability is gonna be really powerful and bring you closer to your friends who are people of color. Okay. Many of the people I engage with in these conversations live and work in very all white environments, literally zero real or meaningful connection with others who are not like them. In the conversations they constantly refer to the media wants us to, or the media is blowing this out of proportion. Some of them have confirmed and acknowledged their lack of exposure to people who are not like them. How do I get them to a place where they could engage with other cultures and ethnicities not like them? Or any other method establish, uh, to establish empathy and understanding within them? That's a great question. And that's a tough one. That's a tough one because it's, um, let me give this example. So if you were to ask a fish, hey, how's the water? The fish is going to respond if it could speak. How, what is water? Like it's so ubiquitous and such an integral part of their life that it's so around them that they don't even recognize it. And so when you think about the, the structures that lead to this in, uh, the, the lack of justice and lack of equity in society, the structural racism, it's so around us and so uh, pervasive that people don't even recognize it because they're just say, this is how the world has always been. And so it's, it's tough to get people to become more self-aware of it. And so again, there there are going to be things that people might say, like, this is the media blowing things out of proportion. There are going to be things that people say that are distractions. And so you have to recognize when it comes to focusing, you have to focus on what is your goal, number one, what you need to correct in order to be successful and what you can let go. Okay, if you think the media is uh, blowing this out of proportion, okay, fine. Okay, I think we can uh, avoid that part. Well, tell me your understanding of what happened, getting curious with compassion. Okay, great, all right. Um, Were you aware of this situation? Okay, great. So what do you think about that? Should this have happened or, or no? Okay, what are some things we could do to make sure this doesn't happen again? All right. So you would say then that there are issues within these institutions, right? That's all we're trying to say. Whether or not the media is uh, covering it the right way, that's a completely different question. I'm not even going to engage with it. Because really what you're trying to do is in this question that you've provided me with is you want to help the people that are around you to recognize that there are structures that are created that lead to benefits for them and detriments uh, and injustice for other people. That's it. You don't really care too much about their perspective on the media. That, that's problematic. Let's save that for another day. The bigger fish to fry is getting them to understand that there, there are structures around us that are problematic. OK. As one of the few people of color in my industry um, and my geography, I often find myself being called to speak for or explain issues of racism in a professional setting. I'm willing to do this. But as someone with light skin privilege, I don't want to speak for others who don't share my privilege or be the voice or the only voice that they listen to? Are there tactics to avoid being tokenized? What a question. And so um, for people who are not familiar, so light skin privilege. Um, so for instance, I would be categorized as a dark-skinned black person, if you could not tell. My my wife would be categorized as a light-skinned black person. Um, Barack Obama would be categorized as a light-skinned black person because he's mixed, right? And so what we found is that the the more Africanized. Somebody's features are the more uh, pernicious the uh, the the barriers that they face are going to be. Several studies, especially more disturbing studies, in um, when it comes to uh, the court system and the, ju- the judicial system, um, where people who are have darker complexions, um, larger nose, those type of things, those classic African features, are tend to get harsher sentences several studies have shown this. So that's what light skin privilege means if you're not familiar. Um, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. And I think for you, again, use the internal version of compassionate curiosity too. So how do I feel about this situation? Okay, why do I feel this way? Do I want to have this position? Do I want to hold the mantle in this way? Do I, okay, if I accept the mantle, now I need to figure out how I go about the conversation. Once you master that internal negotiation and you figure out where you stand and what you ultimately want to do, then we can have the external negotiation. And if you want to make sure that you're not tokenized or you want to make sure that you're not put in a position where you're speaking for everyone, I would include that disclaimer. I would include that disclaimer and always before everything that you say, we as black people are not a monolith. My experience is going to be very different from other people. And so I, I can tell, I can speak in generalities and I can speak from my experience, but I can't speak for everybody. And that's, that's the way that I would include that disclaimer. But listen, if you are in a situation where you're doing that, um, but you don't feel comfortable, like some days you don't feel like doing it. Some days you don't feel like doing it. You can set that boundary. Don't feel obligated to have the conversation If t- today. I don't feel like it. Okay, just let people know. Again, using the framework. And so this, instead of asking, getting curious with compassion, I would just acknowledge my own emotion and their emotion. I would just say, listen, um, it, it seems as though you really want to learn about this situation, and, and that's a good thing. Um, but right now, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm in a place where I can have that conversation. And so that's it. You just set that barrier. Nobody's going <laughs> Could you imagine how ridiculous it would be? No, I want you to talk about it right now. Oh, wow. Whoa. Now we have... <laughs> We have some completely different issues here, right? So um, so yeah, I would feel, I, what I would do is I would want you to feel more empowered setting that boundary if you do not feel comfortable, okay? Um, but if you do, then engage and you can use that that framework. Um, I was at a work dinner last night and overheard a part of a conversation between a few of my coworkers. And one of my coworkers said, either becoming a racist or becoming... Said that they were becoming um, racist or more racist i was appalled i was so caught off guard i didn't know what to say or how to respond i don't know the entire context of the conversation however i feel like i need to address this with my coworker so i can understand and feel comfortable with the environment how do i approach the coworker about what i heard that's a tough situation first of all kudos with the way you responded in the moment because sometimes when you're caught off guard the best thing to do is just say let me I need to think about this. I need to think about this. That's the difference between reacting and responding. I want you to respond. That takes a little bit of thought, right? If you just react based on your emotions, based on your amygdala, your amygdala is not designed for deep levels of thought. And you might have said something that you regret that could have put your job in jeopardy. Okay. So I want you, when you're having these conversations, to be your best version of yourself. That's it. And so sometimes the best version of yourself is not at the table at this very moment. So kudos for taking the time. So now after you download the guide, you'll see how to kind of structure the conversation. Um, AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash justice. As you can tell, I want you to download these guides, okay? Um, They're free and very, very helpful. And so what I would say in this situation is um, I would call the person in. I'm not gonna do this in front of other people. I'm gonna call the person in. And I just say, hey, listen, fact. Um, I heard, I overheard your conversation and I heard you say X, Y, Z, and I'm a little bit confused. Can you tell me what you meant by that? And so right now you, you say, I heard this. And then you're transitioning to compassionate curiosity. You're not, you're not jumping on them. You're not saying, you're not criticizing them immediately. What you're doing is you're saying, Hey, tell me about what you meant. Open-ended. Let's hear what you say. Okay, great. All right. I'm still not exactly sure what you meant. What led you to, to that conclusion? All right. Um, what impact do you think that had on me when I overheard that? Okay, great. And so you just transition, right? From there, most likely, if you have that conversation with somebody, what you're going to get is profuse apologies, profuse apologies. And if you don't, <laughs> if they stand by that, okay, okay then we realize something. Um, Now I'm gonna introduce a new term called BATNA. This is a negotiation term. It's called your best alternative to a negotiated agreement. If you recognize you're not gonna get what you want or need out of this conversation with this specific person, what you say to yourself is, yeah, now I'm gonna look at my alternatives. Alternatives are things that you can do with or without their consent. And so in that situation, that's when you go to HR. That's when you go to the higher levels and say, listen, They're not making the change. I had the conversation. They're not making any change. They're not apologizing, whatever. Ball's in your court. Now you can use the framework with that person to persuade them to have your back in this situation because they're clearly not going to get on board. But first of all, uh, sorry that you had to go through that. That's absurd. Um, And so I think this is a framework that you can use. But again, just starting off with that, that that curiosity and a really... Powerful tool. I can't take credit from this. This is, this is my friend, uh, Dan Oblinger, who said, I'm confused. That's it. I'm confused. And people feel the need to, to uh, alleviate your confusion because people deeply, on a deep level, they want to be understood. And so I think that's a powerful way for you to address that conversation. Do we need to let people know we're doing the one thing? Can it be inward? How effective is social media in this movement? Great question. You don't need to let people know if you don't feel comfortable. Um, I recognize that sometimes it's, it's, when you make a public commitment, it makes it more likely for you to follow through. So it's not even so much about other people, it's more about you. And so for me that's why in um, in 2017 when I wrote my book I told people in January listen I will write a book this year and I kept it up on my social media because I said to myself man if I don't do this (laughs) I'm going to feel embarrassed that was holding me accountable Um, that's one thing and then also it's a it's almost like a um, encouraging other people so they say oh you know what this person was on the sideline before I was looking they didn't do anything I feel comfortable in not doing anything oh man somebody else is doing something, maybe I can do something, maybe I can do something. And so I think it's a a solid method of persuasion because it allows people to self-select by liking, right? And you can use that as a tool to have the conversation. Hey, I saw you liked the the comment. Thank you very much. I appreciate your support. Um, Wanted to see uh, just trying to move the the society forward. And what I want to do is I want to help other people to do the same thing. So what thing do you think you could do to help society, right? How do you think you can help in, in your small way? And it's a way to open the dialogue and call people in and have the conversation because it doesn't take much to make a difference. You do your one thing and then you encourage somebody else to do it. And then they can do the same thing. It's a bit of a ripple effect. But I think if you are able to do that, it helps to commit yourself. Even before we talk about um, like virtue signaling to make uh, for other people to say, oh, wow, you're such a good person or anything like that. You're doing it for you. You're committing yourself to do it. And when you commit publicly, it makes it more likely for you to follow through.